Hello and welcome to Popstream, listeners, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that part of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad, and the ridiculous of movies, either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I write for Horrified.com, the British horror website, as well as thegeekshow.co.uk, where I review films and do our classic Doctor Who coverage on Patreon. I've been joined this week by... By uh, Rob Simpson, site editor of The Geek Show. And as of um, Friday, Thursday, whenever it was, podcaster for hire. So if you've got another podcast, come and get me. Because uh, I featured recently on uh, my favourite po- film podcast. That was fun. Yes, that's a good show. And uh, I th- I'm not sure of the running order that I've just decided on, but uh, its host, Gav Smith, will be either coming up or will have already aired an episode, depending on when this goes out. And do check his podcast, because both of us are on it. Uh, Graham's doing more Holland Drive, and I did 1998. Chiller, although I never really got why they called them that. Uh, the Ring, Ringu. What film would you say deserves the name Chiller more? I would say something about The Great White Silence is, is a yeah. better... It's got to be a cold movie. Yeah. It just makes sense otherwise. It was one of our uh, new genres that we invented at Cinema Eclectica was the silent cold movie. There's quite a few of them, really. Hmm. Yes, there are. Especially that weird Canadian one, you, you know, the very, very original found footage movie. Which one was that? Uh, about some resort, not resort, some um, old mining place in, in Canada. Oh, boy, of yeah. Old, old footage has been reconstituted and put into this documentary. Dawson City for all some time. Yeah, that's a very good movie. And as you say, a literal found footage movie. Yes, you can't question, who's filming that? Why is this going on? Why are they still filming? Something's killing them off. No questions. Why are these things buried in a Yukon gold mine? That is the main question that that film leaves you with. Yes. But the subject of today's pop screen is not Dawson City for Olden Time, although it may feature a 1900s pop star in there. I haven't done the research. The subject of today's episode is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful film I've seen in my life. It also stars one of the few pop stars who could be said to have had a proper film career, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra's recording and acting careers were both so staggeringly successful it might be hard to recall which one came first. There is a definite answer, which we'll reveal at the end of the show, but for now, we've decided to tackle one of the more controversial items on his CV, John Frankenheimer's 1962 film The Manchurian Candidate, adapted from the novel by Richard Condon, who once said, every book I've ever written has been about abuse of power, so ring-a-ding-ding, I guess. (laughs) Yes. This was this was the film you and I bonded over to some extent, wasn't it, in the very early days of Eclectica? It was, yeah. Um, that was the first time I watched it, and it was sort of, a, for me anyway, it was a hello, uh, John Frankenheimer, because before mm. that, he's just one of many, many names. But after that, you know, it's a real interesting name. I can't remember what we bonded over, because it was so long ago. 
like the last week feels like a lifetime. So yes, yeah. <laughs> you're asking me a very long time ago that. Yeah, listeners, in case you're wondering when me and Rob met, it was Tuesday. Um, mm. But <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it and thought it was terrific and subversive as well. And it's, I think I, I got very attached to films that I felt were subversive when I was a teenager, partly because I was a teenager and it's what you like. But I also had like grown up thinking that films were very sort of mainstream and dull as a form of entertainment and I was excited to see things that put something more dangerous into that sphere particularly when it stars someone like Frank Sinatra who I would not have associated with this kind of material. I can relate with that because well I think it happens to everybody you think it's like when you find music when you're a kid you just listen to the chat music you think oh the chat music it's fine it's fine it's not really me but it's fine mm. and the same is true of music a movie sorry uh and you think of the 1960s when you're a kid anyway when you're a kid you don't know anything about the swinging 60s or anything like this mm. you just think the 60s is very establishment era yeah it's your dad's music isn't it that's the yeah. association yeah and this is both that and very much not that. Mm, absolutely. And I think one of the assets it has is that Sinatra is one of the few people at his level of musical celebrity who is just immediately credible as an actor. You just immediately buy him in this role. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he really acts. He's just, just himself, really. It's star persona, but it's a star persona that I think is more portable than, I mean, to take an obvious example, than someone like Dean Martin's. I mean, even the content of his songs, he's quite genuine, mm. um, down to earth, even though some of the lyrics of his songs have aged quite badly, as you'd expect for somebody in that era. And <laughs> keeping a talking black guy in your troupe kind of dated badly too but mm. you know as far as that era he was very very genuine although sammy davis jr i should say is the only member of the rat pack who i really value is it solely because of that amazing six minute cameo he does in sweet charity no just <laughs> mostly helps it helps yeah <laughs> I know you're not a fan of musicals, Rob, but that is absolutely incredible. The song is great, and he looks like he's wearing stuff that was rejected from Andre 3000's wardrobe for being too bright. Is that possible? (laughs) (laughs) The man dresses as a a pea. (laughs) He's an odd human being, Andre 3000. So, yeah... um... I should say before we go on that that kind of, I don't know what you'd call this. I mean, it is technically jazz, but it reminds you that jazz is a broad field. That kind of Vegas crooner stuff uh, is the one style of music that I have total antipathy for. I just cannot get along with it at all. Yeah, um, I agree. I don't like it stylistically whatsoever, but I don't know, there's just something about it. It's timeless. It's absolutely mm. timeless and it's always and will forever be 
uh, good taste, I guess, is the word that I'm lo- the phrase that I'm looking for. It has an all sense of class around this, I think. Yeah, not in the sense of um, you have a good taste if you listen to this sort of music. I mean, I introduced myself to somebody to, and I said, "Hello, my name is Rob. I like noise punk." And people, are like, <laughs> this guy's weird. If I go up and say, "Hello, I'm Rob, and I like Frank Sinatra," I think, ah, hang on, he's he's a good egg. Keep yeah. him around. It's just that sort of perception. I think it's always been there, really. Yeah, I think it has. I, I mean, I think I, I will put my cards on the table and say part of my distaste for this music is I always associate it with Michael Parkinson's Radio 2 show, which always used to be on in my house. And he had this maddening running tick of complaint about how, how the, the music nowadays, it's just, uh, you know, the lyrics don't mean anything. They don't write them with feeling anymore. And then he'd play some Rat Pack stuff and it would start with like, skibbity dip bap whip bap bidoop scoop bap biddy bong. You know, wow, they really don't write them like that anymore, do they? The, I know this isn't really about his music, but the one that really bugged me, it, it's a meme that was prevalent a few years ago. How it said, in the 1960s, people dressed like Sinatra and the Rat Pack, and people now dress like, uh, I don't know, kids at the local playground getting off the head on white lightning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, can't, you can't equate those things together. That's a really odd meme there. Yeah, I always... Uh, th- there's a whole sort of subgenre of memes that are like targeted at people complaining about the fact that an imaginary version of the past no longer exists. My favorite was always like, oh, um, back in the day, you know, you had pop stars like Freddie Mercury and look at what they'd have now. And it's like, yeah, Freddie Mercury would be horrified if he saw what pop stars were like now. Imagine Freddie Mercury seeing Lil Nas X, oh, he'd be distraught. <laughs> be clutching his pearls to be fair to those people i don't think the establishment was very pro freddie mercury to be honest no he was a bit but, of an outlier really yeah. wasn't he and and as, as you sort of as, as you remember an eva you conflate it all into one you get rid of the conflict in it. like when you mentioned thinking about sinatra in terms of the 60s like Sinatra was all going around in the 60s saying the Beatles were a bunch of seditious long hairs and their music was un-American and it's like <laughs> well but, yes they are British but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scouts yeah. is about as un-American as you can get really so well done Sinatra <laughs> so yeah it, it's very strange that when people think back they forget that these musical genres were kind of antagonistic towards each other and just it just all gets wrapped up into as you say into good taste mm. it's weird i've tried when people think of tribalism mm. think of i don't know uh, los angeles rap versus new york rap yeah not Frank Sinatra having a go at those boys from Liverpool. You never think of that sort of thing, do you? I mean, I'm as guilty as it as anyone else. If you could, if you asked me what the difference between a modern a rocker was, I, I would, I would struggle. But you know, massive gang wars were fought over a um, day. They had Vespers, one of them. Yeah. That's about as far as I could commit. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. Maybe the rockers were just unusually opposed to scooters. Yeah, kind of are annoying though. They are, Being yeah. Just buzzing around. Oof. I think we've picked a side here. Yeah. 
<laughs> not the one with the Vespers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I'm sure somebody could answer that question. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I, I, as we say, seeing that person, seeing that person who was complaining about the Beatles being just a racket and you couldn't hear the lyrics in the context of something as dangerous as this is mm. quite a ride. Yeah, it's amazing to hear that from the like, past generations about something as universally lauded as the Beatles. But you exactly. know, yeah. time is a weird mistress, I guess. Um, it is very subversive, really, because fundamentally what you're talking about is communism in America mm. and the way that that manifests, really. And it's subversive in casting as well. I know this wasn't intentional, but... Um, oh, I can't remember her name now. It's Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, yes. Plays, I don't know the name of the her son character, Ray, in this, but mm. there's only Lawrence a few Harvey. years difference there. Lawrence Harvey. She's only yeah. a few years older than Lawrence Harvey there. And yeah. She plays his his mum, and he's been basically conditioned as a sleeper assassin, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and... It's a weird perception thing, isn't it? It's it's an odd thing, yeah. And it's even, I mean, it works perfectly now in a strange way because you see Angela Lansbury and you think, oh, Jessica Fletcher, murder she wrote. It's like it becomes impossible to imagine a time when Angela Lansbury was not a nice old lady. But yeah, I can't imagine what people at the time made of it. I mean, personally, I can never picture a time when she was actually young. It's kind of mind-blowing to see her in roles like this. Completely. And yeah. it's subversive as well, again, in that, that, using that time um, framing. Now you think of nice old Angela Lansbury. She's, mm. she's Mrs. Fletcher. She goes around and death follows her. Or she's sort of an elder <laughs> statesman in British acting. And in this, she is horrid. She's absolutely vile, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's the big bad, essentially, to use that term. But it's interesting, yeah, because if you're if you're trying to sort of map this onto real life political figures, I mean, you have to tackle the fact that Raymond Shaw is quite a lot like John F. Kennedy. And it has that look alike there, yeah. They have a, a military background. They're like young, sort of fairly liberal candidates who seem to, as you say, even have a facial resemblance. And I think part of that's how it sort of, how it switches uh, on you because one of John F. Kennedy's major electoral liabilities at the time was his father, Joseph Kennedy who was the most horrendous shit. Like his, his big moment on the national stage was as a businessman in the 1930s who was loudly insisting that we should sign a non-aggression pact with the Nazis. So yeah, a mm. total dick. As well as sort of running through time as well, there's a likeness between uh, the puppet head who would try to install as president mm. and figures through history especially contemporary history. It's just one of these weird little bits of subversion, which it doesn't get less subversive over time. I think it's actually got more and more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think partly because of something else that we'll get onto. But when you see 
James Gregory playing John Isolin, Raymond Shaw's father, you think, all right, he's going to be the villain because he's positioned as the Joseph Kennedy figure in this allegory. Mm. And he's on air and he's like ranting about lists of communists that have infested American public life. Uh, He can can never get his number straight either at that first interaction. Yeah, yeah, he can't. It's uh, that that's another sort of real world political element because he's basically meant to be Joseph McCarthy, right down to the fact that he is drunk off his face for most of these rants. So they've given you a very good red herring. They've given you two of the most monstrous political figures in recent American history at the time um, combined into one. And that manoeuvres Lansbury as Eleanor into place. You don't suspect her as the main villain because, come on, this guy's Joseph Kennedy meets Joe McCarthy. Who's worse than that? Always the quiet ones. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't think she's actually that quiet in this in this movie, but yeah. She's yeah. very ranty, yes, particularly towards the end. A particular quality of like anybody who she doesn't like, she accuses of being a communist, which is <laughs> a reach, I guess. It's true, yeah. But you know, another thing that hasn't really aged about the film, I think. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, more, more relevant over time. Yeah, nowadays, maybe she'd be a best selling self help author, but. Um, yeah, uh, she's a very, very ominous figure. And I think Lansbury, I don't want to say she steals the show. There's a lot of good performances in it. But if I had to pick one that's iconic, it's probably this, right? Yeah, yeah, because it, well, yeah, basically. Uh, a character who is, the, the you know, the mother next door on the white picket fence, mm. Um you know, dressed exactly as you'd expect her to be. So the very upstanding, stately mum character. But she instigates some really, really horrible things. I mean, there's plot nuances that make it a little bit more complicated later on, but she is just horrifically manipulative mm. in everything that she does. Every little gesture she does, everything she's done is designed to mess with her son's head. It's just really, really nasty. I mean, there's, there's horror movie villains which don't do things as insidious as what she pulls off here. Yeah, it was based on, there was an insinuation in the book, I think, that um, there was some very heavy sexual abuse in Raymond Shaw's past, which obviously is, like, absolutely unspeakable in this era of Hollywood. But it's implied about as strongly as you get the kiss that Lansbury gives Lawrence Harvey is not very, very maternal. I can't recall that saying, to be honest. Uh, When does that happen? It's it's right towards the end where she's sending him out to, you know, do his final duty to be the Uh, assassin. There's a kiss between them that is really quite creepily lingering. Mm. Well, maybe that is the only way they could really pay homage to that aspect of the book because they wouldn't have so. let it yeah. in a, a much more straightforward way. It had to be a bit more sneaky with it, yeah. which is which is the, the story of so many movies of that era. They tried to sneak little references, little touches, which maybe the standards upholders of the time, I guess you'd call them, would never really 
have any truck with. And censorship-wise, there's some stuff in here that is still pretty disturbing, I think. Surprisingly violent, too. Yes, yeah. Yes, but in a few instances, um, yeah, very, very violent. Not just suggestive, literal. There's gore in this movie. Mm. I think whenever you see this film excerpted on television, they always go for... Um, the scene, the flashback scene or the nightmare scene, depending on how you want to read it, where uh, Ray Shaw witnesses someone being brainwashed into killing one of their fellow soldiers, which means this is probably the most replayed, like, headshot, the most replayed sort of plate splatter of brains uh, outside of the Zaparuda footage, appropriately enough. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's a weird scene as well. Uh, it's horrific, mm. but it's so matter of fact. Um, the brainwashed, and it's presented in a weird way. Uh, especially the, the, I think first there's a version of it where there's a lots of um, black women in you know flowery floral dresses. Yes, yeah, and they're always referred to the person doing the brainwashing as ma'am, even though it's. It's, uh, I, want, I don't want to say Chinese, but that's a bit loose when you, you've got a character in this called Chun Jin, who is played by an American actor called uh, Henry... Oof, names. He's not American, let's just say. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Henry Silver, I think, is the name of the actor. Ah, uh, yes, Henry Silver, yeah. Um, But, yeah, it alternates from the very, very middle class, very upstanding floral dresses and whatnot and cuts to a lot of military leaders and the way mm. it's cut together but the way that the um the brainwashed interact with it it's, uh, can you just get past it oh, oh yeah thank you very much i'll just squeeze past here oh no am i in your way oh, let me move your chair and then it shoots the guy in the head <laughs> it's yeah it doesn't so... even cut to the military leaders does it it pans around and the extras sitting there slowly change from as you say these very nice ladies in floral dresses to a, a series of military leaders it's an absolutely bizarre scene it, it, doesn't, it takes a while before you realize that it is the same instance it's just mm-hmm. you know the perception of who characters eyes we are seeing it through it changes from moment to moment there yeah. One minor thing that I was trying to work out, I tried to work out if this was the first film that had a pre credit sequence, which it doesn't seem to be. Bond started the same year, and James Bond films are obviously famous for very elaborate pre credit sequences. So I don't think it is. I think I would have seen some reference to this being the first if it was. But that did surprise me. I'm used to films of this era starting with like a long playbill of who's in it and who made it. Uh, but you yeah. get that first scene with Kennedy at war, uh, with Raymond Shaw at war, um, before any of the opening credits have rolled. Yeah, and that's part of the rules, isn't it, really? Yeah. Where they have this shared memory which has been planted, but None of it happens. So as the movie starts, we are introduced to this this fabricated memory. Mm. And it couldn't have started any other way, really. That's essential as as far as setting the stall of what's 
going through the mind of these brainwashes. I mean, nowadays you realise it's a false memory for a very different reason, because you've got a character based on John F. Kennedy and all of his men are teasing uh, him about how he doesn't want to go on shore leave and pick up girls. And you think, yeah, that's definitely not John F. Kennedy. I don't <laughs> buy that for one second. Yeah, he was he was a saucy boy. He was, yeah. <laughs> you know, if if ethics committees had got hold of him, I think he'd get a firm slap on the wrist for some of the stuff he did. Uh, he did, he did, but he gave the world the sexiest happy birthday song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, by proxy, you know, so fair enough. <laughs> that is historical legacy. <laughs> that, that's it, yes. Yeah, there's an urban myth about this film that after the Kennedy assassination, uh, Sinatra pressured the studio to pull it completely, uh, which isn't true. It did go out of circulation, but largely because its pre-VHS movies remained in circulation in the sense that, you know, they would remain available to show at cinemas and nobody wanted to watch a movie about a political assassination after 1963. Yeah, yeah, which is understandable. Yeah. I mean, but it's also really a perverse angle to take. If it was taken out of circulation now, if a movie was controversial now, that means you take it off all the streaming platforms, um, video on demands, uh, DVD, don't shot on TV. It's pretty you really hard do. to enforce, yeah. You take it out of a lot of the things there, but then maybe showed it on TV once or twice, maybe, maybe. Perhaps, yeah, I don't know. And I think, no, it would take probably it off, stay take it you. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's very strange thing to suggest because it's not like movies were regularly cycled. Once mm. it was off cinema, it was gone effectively. Yeah. It wasn't until VHS where you know, pulling it actually meant something. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't until VHS when pulling it became unenforceable, really, because as soon as it's gone on sale, someone's got a copy. But that wasn't the case back then. Mm, bootlegs and whatnot and what have you. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't quite that, but it does feel unusually predictive of the way that things would go. I mean... This is released in the same year as the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a pretty hairy time to be putting out political thrillers about the Cold War. Yeah, especially it doesn't exactly paint it in positive lights either. The suggestion that, you know, well-to-do middle-class women effectively have huge roles to play in it mm. and manipulating on a micro level. So it's not just where missiles are, who's going to get bombed, Nicey, 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 nicey. Hide under tables at school and have these weird routines. Yes, that's, yeah. that was the reality. This movie is suggesting a really harsh future in which the political elite, I guess you call them, were manipulating and sowing seeds of discontent and assassinating people. It's a really, really cynical worldview that they're establishing in this movie. Yeah, and I think part of the cynicism of it is that it is just such a whirlpool that nobody in it with the exception of Bennett the Sinatra character has any kind of a sincere motivation 
I was trying to work out if you could like boil down the moral of the Manchurian candidate to one sentence, what would it be? And I think it would be something like anti-communism is a communist plot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because it is kind of messy politically, isn't it? Mm. As far as the goals of the, the of uh, Angela Lansbury. And I wonder whether that's part of how they got away with it, is that by the end you feel like you, you, you were uncomfortable saying whether this is a left-wing or a right-wing movie. It feels subversive, we've established that, but as for saying what side it's on, you would have to follow it very closely, and I think a lot of moral guardians will have given up. It's very ambiguous. I think it's quite clever in that regard. It's worth wondering, too, what did Richard Condon know? Because as far as I can tell... He was basically a popular fiction writer. I can't see any sort of insinuation that he might have known about the psychiatric programs that the CIA was setting up with people like Dr. Ewan Cameron, where they really did believe you could just wipe someone's mind clean and start again. So if he didn't know, it has to be one of the weirdest lucky guesses in literary history. Well, it wouldn't be the first. There's been some pretty good predictions. I mean, hell, the Simpsons predicted Donald Trump would be president, so yes. why can't this guy get, you know, this sort of thing? Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's unusually specific. Um, I don't think it's impossible to get that sort of a depth, a, a jump on the political classes and what they're doing or not doing. I just think it was a, a hotbed at the time, really, mm. where nothing was off the cards the paranoia was off the charts and it was just a scary time, I imagine. And when the times are scary, as we can see now with the, the way the, the populism is going, mm. people make some huge leaps when they feel threatened. Yeah, I suppose maybe the reason why JFK is on my mind so much as I talk about this is because... Um, he was scheduled to come back, wasn't he? QAnon were insisting that him and his son were going to come back and endorse Donald Trump uh, last week, and <laughs> tragically, that seems not to have happened. Yeah, pity. Pity for QAnon. It seems so... Not onto something there. <laughs> They'll get it one of these days, Rob. One of these days, you know, we'll be grovelling to them, apologising forever, doubting this stuff. Yeah, but the fact that... If, if... A movement like that can come about with some of this mad stuff that comes out of their mouths. It just shows political instability, gets people's yeah. minds all running. And but the 60s pretty unstable as far as political statement, uh, political systems, you know. I think one of the fun things about looking back at this era of conspiracy theorising is that it's a time when you have to do serious work to, like, to even just be able to guess at some of this stuff. Because it, it wasn't like now where you just have to open Facebook and you're told like about 50 different complete lies about what's in the COVID vaccine. Yeah, I mean, people who are worried that the government's going to follow them with the COVID vaccine, you should basically give up completely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, <laughs> that is what it is. But yeah, I mean, you get people from that era who seem to be a bit more on the nose. They seem to have like the more whistleblowers around then, and more people who, you know, uh, well, defected, I guess, would be the, the right term. 
So there's a lot of things around and circling around and lots of capital ideas and, and whatnot, rather than just mad people on, on, on Twitter saying things. Yeah, getting a lot of people to retweet them. There was people who had some sort of you know background there. So maybe, maybe the original author knew somebody who knew something. So who knows? Conceivable. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I just feel like paranoia in general is one of those things that's more fun when it's difficult. There's no fun in making this stuff too easy. Yeah, yeah. Paranoia now is very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you can't really be more cynical than the people who are actually in charge. Oh, oh. I don't want to get into that because it's bloody depressing. <laughs> mm, yes. But uh, we've talked about Lansbury, we've talked a bit about Sinatra. Um, I think Lawrence Harvey is very interesting in this. He always had a reputation, somewhat unfairly, as being kind of a lightweight actor. But I think Firstly, that's very good at selling Raymond Shaw as the kind of empty vessel that the machine behind him needs him to be. And secondly, I think the bits in this way has to be sort of anguished and traumatised are actually perfectly convincing. And it's, it's just, well, yeah, he's everything he needs to be, but it's just the perception and the way that character is described by other people. It might have been fine then, but now it's really harsh. When when his character reaches his his, his resolution of his character arc, it's, it's poor Raymond, poor friendless, friendless Raymond. It's like, wow. <laughs> Standards for how you judge a person have really changed over the years, because that's harsh. That is rubbing it in a bit, isn't it? I mean, give the guy cut the guy some slack. Yes. Hmm. And uh, another time he's described as about as unlikable a person as um Frank Sinatra has ever met. I thought, no, that's that's not fair. He's he's for me, he's depicted as a person who's torn a lot of uh, separate directions between who he is and what he wants and these these manipulations and uh, balance all of that. For an actor who is thought of as as subpar or average, mm. I think isn't fair really. He does a lot of he, he basically does all like the majority of the heavy lifting here. I think, I mean, I haven't watched everything Harvey's done, but the things that I've watched have given me the impression that he got that reputation just because of bias against comedy, that he tended to do a lot of light romantic comedies. So everyone assumed that he must be a crap actor, which is sadly yeah. something that people still do. It's Gene Wilder said that a lot of the time, didn't he? He had a famous uh, quote how he had a pop at the Oscars and similar one body to mm. looking down and comedy acting as lesser acting. Yeah, absolutely, fair. yeah. Hmm. Was it well, Mel yeah, he... Brooks who said, dying's easy, comedy's hard? <laughs> yeah, making somebody laugh is the hardest thing in the world. Mm. You know, it's underrated as a form of acting. And yeah, he's very good at this. Yeah, absolutely. I think he does a, a great job of being effectively the anchor in the movie. Because without him, effectively playing this nuanced and uh, hopeless guy. I'm not saying it in the same way terms that you know, the movie does. <laughs> this hopeless, friendless tool played by this lightweight actor. He, he has no chance in life, really. And yeah, it's communicated really well by the actor, I think, because I yeah. don't think it would have worked without him being as good as he is. 
I remember when Jonathan Demme made his remake of this in the 2000s, that did kind of impress on me how lucky they were to get uh, Lawrence Harvey. Because the the Raymond Shaw role in the remake is played by Liev Schreiber, who is an actor that I know a lot of people like. I personally have never quite seen the appeal, but would you vote for Liev Schreiber? You know, wouldn't you be slightly concerned about the fact that he looks exactly like Richard Nixon? And he just looks nasty and violent. You know, yeah, he yeah. plays all these violent characters and, you know, you get a perception of the way people look. So you're going to beat me up if I don't vote for him. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> might be effective. <laughs> well, it were, no, I can't make that comment. <laughs> <laughs> the, the beauty is it works with anyone you're thinking of, listeners. I can't say the country because they will, you know, murder me. <laughs> <So> <laughs> just leave it ambiguous. Fill in the blank yourself. <laughs> yes. Um the remake is kind of forgettable, although the other thing that I thought was interesting is, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the Kennedy family and Joseph McCarthy as models for this. Meryl Streep played the Angela Lansbury role in the remake and said that she looked at a lot of like male political power brokers. She was very uh, inspired by Dick Cheney when she played that role. And yet oh, as wow. soon as it came out, literally everyone said, oh, she's playing Hillary Clinton. Nuance. Nuance is a <laughs> thing, isn't it? But I do think that's a better casting of the role. I do love Angela Lansbury, but she's too young for that role. She's horrifyingly menacing and insidious, but a bit too young. Do you know who Sinatra wanted casting? And I can't decide whether this is so mad it's genius or just so mad. Go on. Lucille Ball. Her name's not familiar. Famously, one of America's first big sitcom stars with I Love Lucy. Oh, oh, that's weird. Yeah, that's really weird. But you never know. Uh, yeah. Sink or swim. Sometimes he's... Uh, you use the term colourblind, but that's not what I, I'm getting at here. But colourblind casting. Yes. yes. Yeah. Santi blind casting sometimes works. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh... Probably not there, though, but... <laughs> I credit Sinatra for coming up with someone who you definitely would not have suspected. I mean, Angela Lansbury being behind it all is a big twist, but Lucille Ball being behind it is cuckoo. Yeah, yeah. Well, but she is excellent, mm. generally speaking. Yeah, um, there's a there's a strange vein of comedy talent. In this film, I mean, we've mentioned Harvey and his career of associations, but George Axelrod, the screenwriter, uh, wrote a lot of films that I think are tonally quite different, like Breakfast at Tiffany's and The Seven Year Itch. It's a bit of a leap from that to this, yeah. Yeah. Huge leap, in fact. Yeah, it's very odd. And I would have to assume that's Frankenheim is doing, really. I mean, he's got a bit of that wiseacre sensibility. He could probably see a, a novel like Condon's and think, yeah, I think a comedian could probably get out what's crazy and scary about this. Mm, find a relatable angle about it. Because mm. I think that's one of the greatest successes of this. When you talk about political 
You talk about political thrillers. Yeah. <sighs> the kind of tedious, the kind of aloof, the keep your arms length, really. Mm. Um, hard to like. There's very, very few examples where I don't think that's true. I think like uh, Three Days of the Condor, like stuff like that might be pretty much the extent of it by my hugely cynical opinion. <laughs> but this, I don't think it, it is that. It's it's quite down to earth and quite human and it sees the story for what it is. And maybe that's the comedian's influence. It could be, yeah. And I think you have to credit Sinatra a bit for it as well because he is very relatable as a guy who has gone through some horrible stuff and is seeing the possibility for even more horrible stuff unfold. Yeah, I know his reputation kind of makes it hard to point to relate to, but as a screen persona, he does do good every man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's not like a uh, leading man, handsome. I know that's blasphemy to some people, but... But it's true, not... isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, he's a very strange kind of pin-up. He was a pin-up? Wow. Oh, yeah, in his early days, that was his reputation. You know, he was... Ironically, considering his latest later comments about the Beatles, he was the guy that teenage girls were screaming over. Mm, yeah, I can see that sort of legacy. But just when you think of the word pinup and then you put Frank Sinatra next to those words, it doesn't there's something in my head which is rebelling against it. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. He's he's not a good looking guy, but he's charismatic as all hell. Oh yeah, yeah, entirely. Which was the whole point of the, the rap pack, really. That was a hugely charismatic group of singers. Yeah, yeah. I, f- I found out a bit about the Rat Pack, actually, while I was doing research for this, because like I say, I'm, I'm not a fan of that kind of music, so uh, this has been a very researchy kind of pop screen episode. The thing that I didn't appreciate is that Sinatra went to Las Vegas and formed the Rat Pack for the same reason that most other singers go to Las Vegas, which is that his career was really stalling. You know, he- wow. This was in the, uh, yeah, this was in the early 50s too. We'd had a good run in the 40s, but there was a consensus around like 1951, 1952 that maybe the bandwagon was running out of steam. Uh, so you went to Vegas because they do residencies there and it's good kind of guaranteed work. And for once, going to Vegas turned out to revive his career and make him a major player in popular music again. That's wild, really, because uh, it's one of those terms, isn't it? Like uh, Watergate, everything is something gay. It's just become sort of a parlance yeah. of you know modern language. And the Brat Pack, or the Rat Pack, or there's so many variations on that concept of a group of people, you know, like mm-hmm. the hot young things at the time. It became sort of a shorthand for it. So I think it was sort of a last throw of the dice. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. As the rules of the dice goal, a pretty good result. Oh, yeah, yeah. He... He completely. I was going to make a, a like a gambling metaphor there. But I don't know enough about it to make one, so <laughs> I just back out gracefully. Yes, I think by the time we were growing up, Sinatra's reputation was just as someone who was like bulletproof famous, as someone who would never ever stop being famous, which is part of what really surprised me about yeah. that anecdote, even though it's obvious when you think about this, why else does a singer go to Vegas? It's just one of those uh, legacy uh, names like your Elvises, like your Stevie Wonders, like your Elton Johns. Yeah. Just, just 
always everybody will always know about them. I'd like to think so anyway. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, Elvis and Elton John also had their lengthy Vegas residencies that did plenty of good for them. But yeah. Hmm. Nice little uh, consistency there on mm. the random names effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, the Manchurian Candidate, any final thoughts before we close off? Um, I think you have to highlight this because it's it might be a hard recommend for younger people. Mm. I know we're recommending like a political thriller from the 1960s there and Frank Sinatra is a bit of a reach to recommend to anybody or under like what, 40 maybe. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, it's some of the language used in it was a bit, I never noticed that in the first watch, it was a bit, whoa, there, that's a bit full on. As well they as, are, uh, yeah, um, a bit sort of obsessed with the fact that the Chinese characters are Chinese. Yeah, well, it wasn't so much that, it was uh, when, um, oh, I can't remember his name now, uh, really bad with names, I'm sorry about this, it's not good podcasting when you forget the names of everybody. Um, <laughs> the brainwashed guy, uh, sorry. Uh, Ray Shaw, yeah. Ray Shaw, sorry, yeah, Ray Shaw, when his character gets married. Mm. And they get back into his flat, and one of the words, the phrases that comes out of his mouth is, be, be like a good housewife, would you? And it's like, whoa! <laughs> yes. If he, if he said that to somebody now, he'd get a swift needle and nuts a good half dozen times. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it, it just feels really awkward looking at it with modern eyes, little bits like that, as well as the you can call it colorblind casting but for the wrong reasons mm. uh, or maybe Actually, i don't know no I, I don't think so let me just look this guy up it's an actor called uh key Dake who oh well uh, yeah uh an actor of anglo egyptian sudanese ancestry so okay you've got three ethnicities <laughs> you could cast him as and you've hit none of them it's a little bit closer than italian american <laughs> the closer they're getting there yes yeah either or i think they're still better than mickey rooney there's like a line oh, of yeah. really bad racial racially blind casting and this is probably at the more tasteful end historically speaking maybe we can blame george axelrod for him it's because he had a part in breakfast at tiffany's as well so you know maybe he's the common factor but yeah i agree i mean they're not cast according to like modern sensibilities, but equally they're not like loudly stereotyped. It's not. No. No. There's a scale, and this is this is fine. I don't think yeah. it's going to offend anybody watching it. That the comment about the housewife might probably will, but it's such a throwaway little utterance that you probably forget about it soon after you finished it. But when you're watching it, whew, you'll be steamed. And also, the, the guy is like a brainwashed murderer, so it's like, it's, it's not <laughs> yeah, the worst true. thing he does. Uh, no, not by a long shot, not by a long shot. But yeah, I mean, I really like it, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, I think it takes some bold risks. I, the way it, I don't know if you want to bring up the ending, but the mm. way it does end, I think, is a particularly bold risk. Uh, in that era of American cinema, especially, where... I don't know whether it's fair to say, but they always tried to err on the sort of the happy ending, trying yeah, to give things yeah. a bit more of a positive end, like a point to break, um, a positive end to finish on. And this, 
No, it's it's not. It's it is positive in the sense of the threat is defeated, but it does it in such a downbeat way. And that is crucial to it, isn't it? As you say, the threat is defeated. I wonder whether it's one of those sort of haze cold rules where the reason why film noirs are so depressing is because the Hayes Code said that no criminal character can get away with it. So if you're making a crime movie, what you've got in practice is a narrative that follows your lead character along for 80 minutes until he dies horribly at the end. Yeah. And I think there's something similar about the Manchurian candidates. Like, yeah, the day is saved and the right people are punished for it, but... It, it does it in a way that reminds you that there is still a serious human cost to that. Yeah, and it's just this this uh, this wave, I guess you'd call it, of the threat. The actual mm. car at the heart of what made this happen is still out there. It's still a threat. So maybe at the time they considered a Manchurian candidate too. I don't know. It, it certainly leaves those uh, pieces on the table for that idea he picked up. It's just occurred to me, you know, when we did Cinema Collecticon, we used to have a thing where we would recommend a movie to watch with a film we were reviewing as a double bill. Mm. Yes. This would be a great double bill with Secret Honour. I've heard of that, but I've not seen that one. Secret Honour is great. I mean, it's the most anomalous Robert Altman film because rather than having a cast of thousands, it's got a cast of one. Um, uh, yes, I thought it was that one. Yeah. yeah. But a fascinating film that imagines Richard Nixon's last night in the White House and the theory he has as to why his downfall happened is the sort of thing that you can imagine Angela Lansbury's character in The Manchurian Candidate nodding along with. Yeah, entirely. I mean, the one last thing I will say is it, it made me incredibly interested in the work of John Frankenheimer. He's a journeyman, but I He's think there's a really bit, interesting one. Yeah. There's a lot more energy and sort of fire in the belly than you'd usually um, use for describing a journeyman director. I agree. Yeah. And I think one of the things he had that is kind of a rarity is that he was making films in the 50, well, he started in 57, uh, but that was his only 1950s film. He was making films in the 60s that feel subversive, things like this and Seconds, which is great. Um, and then as Hollywood started to liberalise and become grittier in the 70s and 80s, he actually rolled with the punches. He kept going. He did things like 52 Pickup, which is an astonishingly sleazy movie. It's the sort of thing that Abel Ferrara would watch and start thinking, oh, we need a shower after this. Hold hold on. He made seconds within the his code. Bloody hell, he had nuts. Huge, huge <laughs> nuts to do stuff like that. The movie about Rock Hudson, who was a he was a closet gay in Hollywood in a time when it was illegal to be gay. But yes. man changing his face, he did that under the hair's code. Bravo to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Seconds and I love the story that he wanted the face swapping operation in it to be like a shot of a real plastic surgery operation. And it is actually, oh, wow. but he, he had to film it himself because three camera operators passed out trying to do it. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to respect. The fact that he did this, the fact that he did Seconds, he's a fantastic filmmaker, John Frankenheimer. Yeah. Fair play to him, completely fair play to him. 
Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. End on a high. Absolutely. Yes. And if uh, you'd like to hear more of what we do, um, obviously you can follow our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're on all of those at TGS underscore The Geek Show. Uh, but you can also go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you can also get access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, where every month we take a randomly selected director and review two of their works. I think John Frankenheimer is on that list, and I think it would be great if he came up one day. But until next week, when we'll be back with more pop screen, I've been Graham. And how you have been, Rob? And I'm Edison Graham, just bursting in here to say that I realise I completely forgot to resolve that mystery from the start of the show about whether Frank Sinatra was a singer or an actor first, and the answer is both. His first album came out in 1946, but his first film appearance was in Las Vegas Nights in 1941. Uh, so you'd think it's the film career, except he was only cast in Las Vegas Nights because he could sing. He was playing a singer, so which came first, the singer or the actor? Both, it turns out. And now you can annoy people greatly by asking that question and then revealing that it's a trick. And that's your lot for this week. Mm-hmm.